0: So, coming away from our last message in First Peter, remember Alan sharing God's word concerning honoring, honoring our government. Normally, this would be a fairly abstract, if not academic, subject to discuss. As government involvement in our daily lives is generally limited to taxes and the occasional speeding ticket, but this is not the particular time in history where honoring our government is academic or abstract. It has very much become a very much an everyday practice of practical theology. Allen's message was very timely and chock full of applications. we try to follow government orders, try to understand the direction our leadership is taking us, and even ask hard questions about the nature of our republic and its relationship to us. Tonight's passage is the second part of a passage speaking about a people fundamentally transformed and how that transformation affects their relationships to various entities. Allen's passage addresses our relationship with the government. Next week's passage discusses our relationship with our families, and in between is our passage tonight, which asks us the question of how believers who are transformed by the gospel, how their relationships are changed towards their masters, which we commonly apply today to our workplace situations, where we have supervisors, where we have leads, where we have bosses, where we have owners. There is no end to the application that will come from tonight's message, and I hope in a very limited time, we have to provide you some solid food for thought, consideration, and application. And with that, let us read tonight's passage and then open up in prayer. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18-25. through 25, And the scripture reads, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's open this time in prayer. Father, we thank you just for this evening and the opportunity we have to open your word. And we ask, Father, for your spirit to be moving among us to opening our hearts. To allowing us to see where we might need to grow in our relationship with our own bosses and help us father also to be able to speak words of truth as well as challenge as well as love to one another in our small group so we thank you in the name of Jesus amen Peter says in chapter 2 verse 13 we are to be subject to the Lord's sake to every human st- institution and in two seventeen, he also says fear God honor the Emperor. We are subject to governance because God ordained it for us to live under the authority of human institutions. The next topic, tonight's topic, addresses our relationship with another element of that authority, masters. It is also good to look forward to next week, as we have said, that we discuss yet another element of authority, the authorities that we have amongst one another in our families. Each of these elements sits in a hierarchy from bigger governments to smaller families, where, and these are institutions that God has set up to provide civil order which benefits all people. Of course, while we understand these authorities to be established by God, they are not God and only imperfect instruments of God's work. So it is tonight we will continue to understand this command to be subject to every human institution and we will explore the key idea of our message. Believers, fundamentally changed by the work of the suffering servant, are to emulate Christ by honoring our masters and suffering for righteousness' sake, as an act of worship to God, and to open a channel of His grace to us. We'll see tonight, first, the command for how we are to act in the workplace. Then, second, the example on which our workplace behavior is based. And, thirdly, we will explore the experience of God's grace as we obey. In other words, we will first see the mandate to suffer for the sake of righteousness. And then, second, we will see the model of the suffering servant is our model And then finally, we'll see that the manifold grace of God, the manifold grace of suffering as our Savior suffered. Peter writes in chapter 2, verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This is a command in line with the greater theme of being subject to every human institution. And this is the verse in which we start to first understand the point, the mandate to suffer for the sake of righteousness the mandate to suffer for the sake of righteousness here the use of the word servants in this passage is not the same word translated as slave in other biblical contexts but is a word used commonly to refer to household or domestic servants and this category of people may have included slaves people who were owned by others and freed men former slaves those who were freed in some way and who however remained with their masters but had gained their freedom Slavery is not questioned as an institution in the ancient Near East, which clashes with our modern sensibilities, our understanding of slavery, because our understanding of slavery, taught to us by to us by people at school, forms this picture of what we call New World slavery. We must recognize slavery in the ancient Near East is a much different institution than what we think about in our American culture today. Ancient Near East slavery did not did include enslavement of people and soldiers defeated during war and conquest, and taking of those people into your own country in order to use them as basically labor for labor, hard labor. But in ancient Near East, slavery was very different in these ways. First off, slavery was not a permanent condition, and a large percentage, one up to one in three perhaps, of the people across the Roman Empire were slaves or former slaves. It was not uncommon for freedmen to even become Roman citizens after a time. There were no set racial ethnic religious cultural or other external attributes that uniquely identified a person as a slave or a person was part of the slave class they appeared and acted no different than others around uh, people at the time people often entered themselves into slavery to address debt or to avoid poverty it was a way to secure a living for a person and perhaps for their family in fact slaves were not always at the bottom of the social economic economic ladder. Rather, slaves enjoyed a level of stability not enjoyed by poorer people who were free, who had to live day by day, hand to mouth, scrabbling for a survival. Indeed, slaves could own property, slaves could accumulate wealth, and even have their own slaves if they were so blessed with such a situation. In fact, the education of slaves was seen to enhance the value of slaves as well. Also, slaves functioned in many roles not just in the hard labor, menial tasks out in the fields or down in the mines. They also were workshop and household managers, tradesmen, accountants, physicians, tutors, personal secretaries, assistants, ship captains. And we will later see in the message, even counselors of governments. Now, I'm not advocating slavery as a viable career choice, only that while slavery may not have been a preferred station in life, It was not, it should not be considered the most miserable picture we might imagine. One additional thing to consider is that the household slaves or bond servant were often counted part of the household family. You can certainly imagine how such a relationship could happen with a person serving over a number of years under a master. You can draw a modern parallel with the people we hire into our households to help us for various things. The weekly cleaning lady, a nanny, a mechanic, The landlord your hairdresser a music instructor or a personal sports trainer these are all people we could have and perhaps did build a relationship with now there were also times where household relationships with between slaves and masters did not go well and would vary with the household of course and the personality of the master a lot of a slave the lot of a slave or household servant, was in the hands of those who served and those who had the misfortune To fall into the hands of a poor master would meet with mistreatment and perhaps even corporal punishment. Peter says it is a gracious thing, in verse 19, if believers are able to see either their heavenly master in God, the Father, so clearly and so presently that they are able to endure their earthly masters and even respect them in face of unjust treatment. To put up with unfair treatment, to put up with unrighteousness, is a credit to you as a person when you endure because it shows your character. God sees your suffering, Peter writes in verse 20, and honors it because the act of suffering for righteousness' sake brings honor to God. Suffering may puzzle people looking on. Why does Joey keep working hard when his manager keeps calling him names, keeps asking him to work weird hours, keeps throwing him under the bus to his own bosses? Why doesn't he stand up for himself? Why doesn't he leave? And the answer to these sorts of questions must be, because God asked me to. This is what it means to suffer well, to suffer for the sake of righteousness, to suffer for the sake of God's name. In contrast, if believers suffer at the hands of their masters for sinful things, for wrong reasons, they will receive no credit. This is an incomplete grade, a no pass. If the reason the master was punishing the servant was in response to the servant's bad behavior, then the slave, in a sense, is only getting what he deserved, to receive punishment for the misbehavior, no matter how bad the punishment may be. I'm sure, though, there is concern about how do we apply this command to honor our masters, specifically, how far should honoring the authorities over us go? Are we being asked to obey our bosses no matter what? We are concerned if our bosses ask us to lie or commit sin or some other bad behavior in order to get things done... And if we don't obey them, we might lose our jobs, we might lose our positions, we might get a bad reputation. Let us think through the account of a figure from history who, while successful, encountered his own difficulties when his boss commanded him to violate his own beliefs. The time is 600 years before the birth of Christ, and the man's name is Daniel, and he was taken prisoner when Israel was overrun by the Babylonians and was carried from his home by by this empire. And Daniel was forced to serve not just one, but three different masters during this time. And throughout this turmoil, and having good reason to hate the people who captured him, Daniel and some of his fellow Jews excelled and became trusted advisors of this empire. You might be able to relate, perhaps. You were only offered one job out of school, and you didn't have much of a choice, and you ended up landing under a not-such-a-great-supervisor or a particular manager wasn't so good. Or maybe at work, there's a lot of instability. A lot of managers and bosses come and go. Or maybe the nature of your work is that you always have new projects and so you're always reporting to somebody new. And so you can kind of understand where Daniel's coming from. There's always a different boss, right? That's not to say Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived an easy life, even though they excelled, or that they were men who caved in to doing sin and disobeying God in order to keep out of trouble. And that's kind of our dilemma sometimes, right? Sometimes we just don't want to raise any kind of trouble or fuss or object to borderline practices when our boss asks us to do them because we just don't want to deal with that. But this is not Daniel and his friends. No, they were compelled to defy the king and his laws on a number of different occasions, each time suffering consequences for their stands. These situations are first found in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel and other Jewish youths were commanded by King Nebuchadnezzar to eat a prescribed diet. And it was a diet likely violating Jewish dietary laws. Yet Daniel and the three took a stand, obeying the Jewish law. In Daniel chapter three, Daniel and his friends were commanded by the king to bow down before a great idol, to worship nothing else except this statue, a statue of the king. And this was very much in violation of the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord. For this, they risked suffering a fiery death. And in Daniel chapter 6, everybody across the land was commanded not to pray to anybody but Nebuchadnezzar, the king. But Daniel refused to do this, making it a point to openly pray only to God. And for this, Daniel was cast into the lion's den. And so we can see how they suffered and stood firm for God. But we should also notice that Daniel and his friends didn't do the bare minimum just to get by or to avoid as much trouble as possible. They excelled and earned positions of trust in a foreign kingdom while also not sinning against God. They held their standards and yet excelled in their jobs. Nebuchadnezzar heard Daniel, when De, Nebuchadnezzar heard that Daniel was guilty of high treason in praying to some to God alone and not only to him. Daniel chapter 6, verse 14 records Nebuchadnezzar's emotions. Then the king when he heard these words, that Daniel was to be convicted, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till his son went down to rescue him. And then later in verse 16, then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. From the king's reaction, we clearly see Daniel was a valued, trusted servant. Nebuchadnezzar valued him, trusted him, and Daniel excelled. He excelled and gained the king's trust. He excelled and may have even gained the king's affection. We conclude, therefore, Daniel honored his master in many ways while also suffering for righteousness' sake. This should be a foundational principle for us, that we are to honor our master so long as we are not asked to violate God's law. Although it is easy to say, it is a lot more difficult to actually do it. For example, say your boss, Frank, asks you to sign off on certain certifications that you know weren't done or a senior partner, her name might be Sandy, asks you to mark some accounts as collected when you know that there are checks still in the mail or companies have not returned your call. Even with great pressure, we must look to Daniel and his friends who risked their lives in order to stay true to what God has called them to. There's a more insidious problem here, however, and think about this. It is likely Daniel and his three friends disagreed with many decisions that the king and the Persians took. After all, remember, this is the empire that enslaved them and essentially kidnapped them from Israel, the Promised Land, and took them to a foreign land. So how did they do this? How did they resolve this difficulty? It was not for them to disobey their master when the orders were not against God's law. In other words, if it is morally neutral, you're obligated to obey your masters so long as you call them master. And now we have to be careful because there are many things in our lives, many things that we encounter at work, many positions our managers and our companies take that we seem to view as being morally wrong, as against God's law, as somehow sinful, when really they're merely just simply man's preferences and are morally neutral. There are things we don't like about our situations. There are things we don't like about our workplaces that make it intolerable to us, that make us feel slighted, taken advantage of, stolen, robbed. But we should not use these as a thin, holy covering for deeper, darker sins. For example, there are such things, that, and they range all over the map, where we feel like we're being taken advantage of by our companies and feel like the company is sinning against us. For example, maybe the company is too cheap to buy us a sit-stand desk. Or my boss is incompetent in finding work, additional work for us. Or the company's choice of health insurance providers is really limited. Or I feel I'm underpaid. Or I feel like that person over there is treated better than I am. If I allow these feelings to affect the way I treat my coworkers, my boss, my company, the way, and the way I talk about those things to others, then I am a direct, direct violation of what Peter is calling us to do in action and in attitude. What I mean is that even though we are outwardly compliant and good and behaving well, our hearts may not be. Our hearts may be disrespectful and still in disobedience. We will be nothing more, that Jesus says, than whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, decaying on the inside. Matthew 23:27 verses 27 and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We have to incline our hearts towards seeing our earthly masters as instruments, however imperfect they are, of God's work. And we must view those who are around us, our coworkers, our friends, those who we uh, report to as image bearers of God. Even if they are willfully disobedient to God and disrespectful and sinful just as much as we are, we should They should be treated with as much respect as you would afford other image bearers of our God. Now, does this mean that I have to shut up and just take it all? Does this mean I have to stop providing feedback to my managers directly directly, or through, say, surveys? Or do I stop finding constructive ways to talk about our weaknesses in the company? Not at all. We can do these things. In fact, we might be obligated and should do these things but it's the heart and motivation about why you complain, about why you talk about imperfections, that will determine if you are honoring your supervisor. It means that we have to examine our hearts to see where there might be a root of bitterness and where it has set in, and where it may make us discontent with our situations, with the people around us, with the people that we serve. There is a difference between a person who complains about out of a desire to find solutions and a person who complains because they are frustrated or just wanna lash out? Am I an example of somebody who is deeply committed to God that I can go about doing excellently at work no matter the circumstances? Or am I somebody more concerned about getting what I want and deserve? A really good check on your own attitude is to ask yourself this question. Are my actions and my words causing others to sin? Are my complaints causing others to be discontent? We have the freedom to do as we choose and say what we want. That much is true. Freedom to work, to speak, to act, and even to leave our workplaces. But freedom should not be used as an excuse to lead others into ruin. Well, Rob, you might say, it's easier to say these things, but it's really, really hard. How can I put up with mistreatment from my boss? You have no idea what he's like. You don't know, have no idea what he puts me through. How can I deal with this? You don't know what it's like to go home at night under the crushing weight of despair I feel after I come home from work. And the answer to this is going to be addressed as we move from the command to honor towards more practical matters about the manner in which we are to follow the command. We have just seen in what we believe, in about. we have just seen what ways The believer ought not to act towards their masters, dishonoring them. But I'll turn to how, we'll see an example of a person who did suffer well. Let's turn to the other side of the coin and see this. See what inspires a believer to suffer well. And it's our second point. How does one suffer well? We suffer well by looking to the model of the suffering servant, because the model of the suffering servant is our model. That is Christ Christ, is our example of how to put up with difficult things, which Peter highlights in verses 21 through 24, and it is in these verses that Peter looks at the character of Jesus. As we explore this passage, we will see that we are first called to the model, of the, called to model the suffering servant, and then second we will see the clear example of the suffering servant. We are called to model the suffering servant, and we are see the clear example of the suffering servant. Called to model the suffering servant again, one Peter chapter two verse twenty one. For to this you have been called, said Peter. We are called to suffer righteously, and this is because, says the apostle, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. The line of thought is this: Christ sacrificed Himself for you, but it was not just so you could gain a ticket into heaven. No, Christ sacrificed Himself as an example and a model for the way in which we ought to live our lives. Salvation is not just allowing Jesus to carry us into eternity. Salvation is walking beside being led by Jesus as we journey to get get there. Now, I don't believe the normal day-to-day call to sacrificial living, to suffering well, means that we are to find ways to be flogged, to be beaten by people, to be crucified. Okay? Let's make that clear. Peter himself does not indicate this in his command. Christ's example is that of a person so convinced of the truth of God that he was determined and willing to live out those truths in very practical ways, in very radical ways, ways that often led to suffering. For us, to suffer as Christ suffered means that we must first believe as Christ believed, then as a a result of that worldview, as a result of having that faith in God, we will be led in such a way that our understanding of eternity, that our priorities of what's important and will be evident in all that we do. And that oftentimes that is in contrast to what the world requires, wants. It will be countercultural. It will be in conflict. And that's where the suffering comes in. The call is to model Christ. So now let's turn to what that looks like. Let's see the clear example of the suffering servant. We suffer because we've been suffered for, and the person who suffered for us is our example. We are to follow in Christ's steps. And so let's do that by examining how Peter describes Christ in verses 22 through 23. Peter challenges our character, and he challenges us to see our character in light of Christ and to model ourselves after our Savior. When faced with sinful behavior, how do we respond? With threats? Look. You're better careful what you say. The other managers won't like it if you were they were to find out what you wrote about me with a heart full of anger. Look, I don't care what you say. You're just a... Do we respond with harsh words? A rumor? Innuendo? Well, so-and-so is nasty. I don't care what she says about me. She's probably greedy, and... What is it? Let's look at Christ's character and what it might say about how it addresses our own attitudes. In verse 22, Peter writes, He committed no sin. Christ committed no sin. Christ lived sinlessly and was innocent. Christ lived a perfectly sinless life and was innocent in all respects. This sinlessness reserves a twofold purpose. First, because he was perfect, it meant that he was the perfect sacrifice and his punishment through death on the cross was in no way punishment for anything that he did. But it was a complete payment and punishment for all the things that we did. Second, because Christ was perfect, the suffering and death that he went through was remarkable it was remarkable because christ suffered well who goes willingly to these those lengths to be beaten to be mocked to be scorned to have a crown of thorns to be abandoned by friends to be unfairly put to death for no crime he committed who does that voluntarily somebody who is convinced somebody who is principled someone who knows truth someone who has faith and a guide for right action someone who believes next in verse 22 peter writes neither was deceit found in his mouth meaning christ did not speak deceitfully he did not lie he did not fabricate fabricate throughout the accounts of the passion week that is the events of the days leading up to his crucifixion christ never misled with his words the sanhedrin asked jesus a question a question that would ultimately lead to his death as a blasphemer. Luke chapter 22, verse 70 records this. So they, that is the council, all said, Are you the son of God then? And he, that is Jesus, said to him, You say that I am. Then he said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard ourselves from his own lips. And so they convicted him. Instead of lying, Instead of being ambiguous, instead of staying silent, instead of refusing to self-incriminate, Jesus answered them truthfully, knowing that it was the purpose of God for him to be convicted. Next, in verse 23, Peter goes on to write, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Christ did not speak harshly in retaliation for being insulted. You'll see throughout the Passion, Christ did not speak harshly in retaliation to anything that happened to him. For the beatings, the curses, the derision thrown at him. Look at what happens to him on the cross. Luke writes in chapter 23, 33 to 34. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, where there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was nailed to a cross. He was bleeding, in pain, unable to breathe suffering and jesus prayed prayed for them he prayed for them who here while suffering similar pains would pray for the people who persecuted them in spite of what many in the world would see as perfect opportunities a perfectly justifiable example to spit back at the people in the crowd and with their dying breath scream out to them for with my last breath i spit at thee Who would do that? Many of us. But Christ did not. Jesus chose not to. Later, in verse 23, Peter goes on to write, when he suffered, he did not threaten. We see here Christ did not lash out with threats. Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7 records the devil's temptation of Christ. And from this verse, we understand that Christ had power to save himself from that temptation. He could have called down legions of angels similarly when christ was on the cross he had the power and capability and command to be able to command legions of angels to come down to save him but jesus withheld using his power because it was a demonstration of his faith in the father we learn that christ could have called down these angels to save him but he did not and this is because christ clearly saw that the exercise of such power would have been contrary to the father's will lastly in verse 23 we read but Continued entrusting himself to him who just judges justly, which shows us Christ trusted the Father. This is the key in suffering well and understanding why Christ was able to suffer well. Christ was able to suffer well because he trusted in the plans and provisions of the Father. It is a faith trusting in the sovereignty of God. It is also a faith that understands his mission that for Jesus Christ, his ministry on earth was to make much of the Father and submit himself to the Father's plans. Christ could have lived a life that is common to men of the time, could have been a good family man, could have had many children, could have done what he needed to survive and thrive as in his trade as a carpenter, could have grown his business, could have had a nice workshop in Galilee, perhaps taken some vacations. But in the course of doing so, he would have had to compromise his understanding of his call from God to preach the gospel to the Jews and Gentiles. So I ask you, when it comes to modeling our lives after Christ, One of the best ways to do it is to apply Christ's character to ourselves at work. Are we doing so? Are we looking at 1 Peter and the ways he describes Christ and seeing the ways that he suffered? Can we do the same things? So we have just examined the mandate. We have examined the mandate to suffer for righteousness' sake, to give a good account not of ourselves, but of the God that empowers us to suffer well. And we have just covered the model for suffering for righteousness' sake, to hear and follow the model, the, to the model of the character of suffering servant, now we go to understanding that there's a manifested grace of suffering. Manifested grace of suffering. And this is our last point we'll see, that God does bring blessings to those who suffer. Sounds ridiculous, you might say. What good is there in suffering? After all, isn't suffering a result of the sin in this fallen world? But there's something that we can gain from suffering. Peter speaks of this in chapter 2, verse 19. For being subject to your masters is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one suffers well. Suffering well is a gracious thing, says Peter. It's a curious statement when we first hear it, and it becomes even curiouser, because Peter emphasizes it when he repeats it in verse 20. For if we suffer and endure, this is a gracious thing. Receiving this grace, however, as we look at study the scripture, is conditioned on being mindful of God being mindful of God. That is, and this is, as one might suspect, is putting God into our thoughts about, as you go about work, interacting with others, or planning out your life. Being mindful is being fully aware of the omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence of God in your life. Being mindful is being fully aware of eternity that awaits each one of us. How can suffering, when we are mindful of God, be good for us? If we could understand the benefits of this, and perhaps it could be able to suffer well. So let's look at the testimony of scripture to see this suffering and what God does through it. Joseph, the patriarch, was a man sold into slavery by his own brothers out of their own jealousy. And this is found in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 39, we find Joseph has become a slave of Potiphar after he was sold. And Potiphar was an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. He was such an excellent servant that Potiphar made Joseph an overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. However, Joseph had to fight off the, the advances of Potiphar's wife because it was a sin against God to take another man's wife. She was persistent, and in, somehow Joseph was eventually caught up in a compromising position, and the wife lied about Joseph's actions and intentions. And this lie led to Joseph being stripped of his position and being imprisoned. Now, if we were to stop there, you might be tempted to think that there was no point in Joseph's suffering. But as you might know, when in prison, Joseph gained favor among the guards and then also gained a chance to become an excellent servant in the eyes of the biggest master of all in Egypt, the Pharaoh. And what seems to be like a movie sequel, uh, Joseph again becomes a key advisor, and advisor um, in Egypt. While back in Canaan, Joseph family, Joseph's family was suffering from a countrywide famine. Joseph, Joseph's position with the Pharaoh allowed him to prepare a place for his starving family, who were happened to be the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this allowed them to find shelter from the suffering they were encountering. God's purposes were manifested through the suffering that Joseph experienced. But just as important as being an instrument of God's plan, Joseph grew in his faith towards God. And we read about this in Genesis chapter 45, verses 4 through 8. So Joseph said to his brothers, as he's about to reveal his identity to them, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, at this point, if you were one of the brothers, you would be like probably very horrified. Like, good Lord, this powerful man is now here. And now he knows, and now he has the power to make me miserable. But Joseph goes on and says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this the land for these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me... Before you, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors, so it's not you who sent me here, but God. Who else but a man so steeped fully in the sovereign presence and graciousness of God can say those words to a group of men who betrayed him into slavery, imprisonment, and suffering? Who else but a man so steeped in understanding that God is sovereign could say that? In the economy of God, nothing is wasted, not even suffering. God is a powerful God, and in his sovereignty and control, all things, good and bad, occurring in our lives, have a God-glorifying purpose in some way. Romans 8.28 speaks of those who love God, that those who love God will know all things work together for good, but is not A good according to what we might think is good according to our circumstances it is a good for those called according to his purpose in other words it is a good that is aligned with god's purposes the good of romans 8 28 that those things that happen to us are in order that god could affect his plans as we see in joseph and in daniel suffering for the sake of righteousness allows us to learn a few lessons these lessons are first Give glory to God, demonstrating the power of the gospel in our lives, showing that we live for a purpose greater than the scrabbling for resources or comfort in this world. When we suffer, when you lose favor because you won't lie, when you gain an opportunity to witness to others about God, then you gain an opportunity to witness to others that a God is bigger than our paychecks. Suffering also allows us to grow in our faith in God's sovereignty. Weathering difficult times and suffering well produces patience and greater trust Joseph and his fall and then rise into Egypt shows us in great ways how this is true suffering also allows us to gain insight into the garbage we worship more than we worship God when we discover we do not like to suffer for righteousness that's a painful fire to suffer and it exposes junk in our hearts in our lives that keep us from worshiping and loving God more fully when we suffer, it reveals to us things in our dark hearts. During this time of social distancing, stay-at-home, essential services, flattening of curves, Costco toilet paper, face coverings, I have been shown the depravity of my own heart because my heart seeks for security in the finding of supplies and in the, then it is in trusting of God. And I have to admit that I'm not really suffering really right now, but what I perceive as a difficulty is revealing to me the things that I value more than I value God the god of all things wants to love wants us to love him more more than all things and if it is by difficulty and suffering we are to learn those lessons then we have to understand when it comes to us it is a great gracious gift suffering also allows us to gaze with longing for a world without sin when i get sick and i'm miserable and i'm just laid out in my bed unable to sleep uncomfortable unable to uh, do anything maybe not even be able to breathe Then i long for the day when i'll be able well again when i can go out to the garden when i can play some basketball hang out with my wife and family and this is what happens when we suffer it should sharpen our hunger for a world without suffering it should sharpen our hunger for a better day it is a grace from god when we love this world less because we suffer a little bit and we end up loving the next more when we desire God, for when our desire for God um, becomes more than our desire for this world, then we should see that as a gift. Suffering also allows us to germinate a witness to our masters and to our co-workers. When we suffer in the face of unrighteousness, most people are going to shake their heads and just think you're a fool. But some might want to know why. And that is an opportunity for you to tell them about Christ that saves you into something bigger and greater than circumstances and promotions and paychecks. And then finally, suffering also allows us to get, uh, it gets us opportunities to serve others. Sometimes the only way we can reach certain people is that we have kind of walked the road with them. Sometimes the only way we are able to draw alongside others is if we've kind of already been through the same suffering that they've go through. And so when we suffer, sometimes God is teaching us lessons that we might be able to down the, down the road sometime later in life, share those lessons with others. These are gracious gifts from a God that is powerful enough to turn bad situations into something that can be good. As you can see, the gracious things we gain by learning to suffer for the sake of the gospel is not an ability to just grin and bear it and to suffer and to just be able to say, yeah, okay, it's fine, but inwardly continue to fight that struggle. No, the gracious thing that we get when we come to suffer well is that we get to be able to worship God more. That our hearts become more free from sin. That our words speaking loving words of the gospel of truth to others. That our deeds are able to speak of a great conviction of a reality bigger than this world. Suffering well is a mandate given to us. We are commanded to honor our masters, even if they do not honor us. And we should suffer for the sake of righteousness. And if we do so, then we do so in order to please God. Suffering well is modeled for us by Christ, who shows us through his character, revealed to us that as he suffered, as we see in the Gospels, that he trusted the Father more than in what was happening to him. He trusted in the Father's purposes. This trust, this faith, led him to be able to take great stands of conviction and take the mistreatment of others and to be able to return words of forgiveness and love. Suffering well will provide gracious blessings to us, We've learned that tonight in a multitude of ways that we are refined and grown by God. And we should not see suffering as simply punishment, but suffering might be a tool for us to grow. No, suffering well should lead us down paths of joy. If we can understand the greater purposes that a father is attempting to do through them. 2 Peter Chapter 2, verses 25 through 26, as we end our our message tonight, reads this. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus died that we might return to the Father as a sheep returns to its shepherd. But for that to happen, the sheep must realize that they are lost, that they must then do what is needed to get unlost, if you will. What is commanded is for them to find their way back to the flock again that when we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls when we feel suffering as part of that journey to return to the flock then we are returning to god let's close this time in prayer father we thank you for this evening we thank you for your word that speaks so hard to us it is a sword and it's sharp and it cuts us to the bone and sometimes it convicts us of truths that we don't want to hear but we pray father we might be able to receive your word we might be able to feel your spirit moving in our hearts Help us, Lord, to take small steps towards greater righteousness and an ability to be able to suffer well for your sake. Not that we might be able to prove it to ourselves, but we pray, Father, for power that we might be able to do it. We thank you, Lord. Be with us this night. Be with us during this time. We trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name.